Please pray with me. Holy God, may you send your Holy Spirit among us, that we may hear a word of grace. Amen. If you lived in the ancient world, the ancient Greek-speaking world, you might be familiar with the analogy of the cave found in Plato's Republic. The analogy of the cave, there is a man who is chained to a rock, and in front of him are images dancing on the wall. Now, since the man had always been chained there, when he sees those images, he imagines that those images are the sum total of reality. After all, that's all that he knows. And then one day, he's able to break free from his chains and realize what those images actually are. And then he crawls his way to the mouth of the cave and is able to stand in the sunshine and see for the first time. Now those who might have been inspired by that analogy and wanted to see for the first time, they would go seek out their teacher, in this case Plato. Plato had his own school, what he called the academy. Uh, Other great teachers had their schools. Uh, Aristotle had the Lyceum. Uh, Epicurus uh, gathered his followers in a place called the Garden. Uh, Zeno, who was the founder of the Stoic school, uh, gathered his followers in the Stoapokile, not that far away from there. The key is that in the ancient world, if you wanted to learn a philosophy, it meant living it. You had to actually leave everything behind and go live with your teacher. It was in that community where you lived out what it meant to be a disciple. It involved leaving other things behind. I'll never forget reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time when I was 13. I would read the Gospel at nighttime, chapter by chapter, and I remember taking my pillow and putting it under the small of my back and leaning up against uh, my bookcase. My parents had installed the bookcase next to my bed. Maybe that was not accidental. Uh, And then... There was a lamp there, and I read through these small, paper-thin pages of the Gospel of Matthew. One thing that struck me reading through that text was that I was most definitely not a disciple of Jesus. I mean, after all, I I would read through the story, like the story that Shirley read earlier uh, about the call of the disciples, and I said, well, I, I haven't left everything behind to go follow Jesus. I would read further on and and see how to be a follower of Jesus means to turn the other cheek, means to give to whoever asks, means to go the extra mile, means to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To be a Christian means uh, to be a Christian disciple means to, uh, like the original apostles, be sent out uh, with just two tunics and no money and make your life uh, trying to preach the good news and doing good works for others. But when I was thirteen, I was in middle school. I wasn't going to do that. So I wasn't a disciple of Jesus. That much was clear. Discipleship demands everything. It was very intense, or at least it must have been very intense, to be a Christian in the early church. In the early church, uh, we know that they faced persecution. First, the persecution came from other Jews. We see that in the Acts of the Apostles and the martyrdom of Stephen. But persecution was also uh, present in the Roman Empire. 
And even though scholars have disputed exactly how many martyrs there were, at least the threat of martyrdom, the threat of persecution, always hung there. Peter was killed by the Romans by being crucified upside down. Paul had his head chopped off. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Others were feasted to the lions. If you were a Christian, it meant something pretty intense. Discipleship was a serious business. And indeed, some early Christian uh, saints, some early Christian followers like Ignatius of Antioch thought that the way to be a disciple is actually to give up your life, that he sought out martyrdom because he knew that once he was a martyr, he would have actually fulfilled the great call of discipleship. Now, as time went on, of course, and the Christian church began to be much more common, there were more Christians, Christianity became legal, uh, it became much more easy to be, it became much easier to be a Christian disciple, a follower of Jesus. But there were some who really wanted to be hardcore. I mean, they wanted the real McCoy. So what did they do? Initially, they went out into the desert uh, near Alexandria, near the Desert Fathers that were the first of these. But then you had the beginnings of what became the monastic movement. And so therefore, those who really wanted to be followers of Jesus 100%, they gave up everything and they went to go live in the monastery. And they devoted their entire lives to prayer, to reading the Bible, to good works. Most Christians would go to church on Sunday and participate here and, here and again, but they knew that if you wanted to be hardcore, you went to go live as a monk. What does discipleship look like in contemporary world? Ever wondered that? Or asked yourself, what did it mean to be a disciple, to hear that call of Jesus? When I was uh, when I was just about to enter divinity school in the summer of 2004, I had the great privilege of going to Rome for two months uh, to study Latin with this great Latin teacher, uh, Reggie Foster. And I was since I was entering divinity school, I. Wanted, I was like, I, I want to take this discipleship thing seriously. And so one of the things I decided to do was live as simplistically as possible. And so when I went over to Rome, I literally brought just one little backpack for the entire summer. I had all my clothes in a little backpack. And this book took up most of the space in the backpack. Now, again, I have to say, I have not used this Latin dictionary much since then. If you'd like to borrow it, feel free. And I would, I would wash my clothes in the sink that I had uh, and, and hang them out to dry. When I showed up, I had no place to stay. And a friend of a friend was in Rome, and I met up with him, and he very kindly allowed me to stay on his couch for four weeks, which I did. And then after that, he hooked me up with one of his friends uh, who needed a cat sitter, and so I cat-sitted in a, for a friend of his on the, in, in a house in the outskirts of Rome. Um, that's the way I spent that summer, living simply, reading Latin, talking about religion, and when I went to divinity school for the first time, I wanted to, for that first year, I wanted to carry on this, uh, this living. So I brought zero furniture with me other than a twin, twin bed. Uh, I stacked my clothes up on the floor, and I, I didn't have a computer. I got a typewriter instead. I thought that would be more simplistic living. <laughs> I discovered that using a typewriter was a lot more difficult than I thought. <laughs> that like, that, that, that autocorrect in Word is actually very, very helpful. <laughs> I got rid of my cell phone. Some of you might wonder why my cell phone has a 203 area code. That's because I got rid of my old cell phone when I went to divinity school. But of course, as I, I went along, I, I couldn't maintain that level of simplistic 
living, that level of rigor. And again, I broke down and got a cell phone and eventually uh, started to live, eventually got a computer and started to fill out the rest of a normal American materialistic life. But it still nagged me. What did it mean to be a disciple in the 21st century? Now, when I was in Rome, I read a, a, a Christian classic, uh, <coughs> Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, one of the great 20th century spiritual autobiographies. Merton was the son of an artist uh, who grew up in France and England and in the United States. Uh, and through the course of his uh, early life, he ended up becoming a convert to Roman Catholicism. And Merton makes it very clear that when he converted to Christianity, he wanted to be a true disciple. He wanted to be a saint. He wanted to be as good as he possibly could. And so what he did was, he went to go live in a Trappist monastery in Kentucky uh, called Gethsemane. But what struck me about the book was at the end, he had this whole section on justifying being in a monastery. It was as though some part of him felt like he was, he needed to justify that he wasn't doing this just for himself. That somehow if he escaped out of the world, he could claim he was being perfect and a great saint. So he had this whole section on why it was okay to go to a monastery. Because part of him thought that he wasn't doing enough service for others. It was that nagging thing that maybe discipleship included something more than withdrawing from the world. This past week I decided to take a closer look at our text in the Gospel of Matthew. Try and tear it apart a little bit more and see what was in there. I found some interesting things. In the ancient world, those who went to go follow others, it was a choice of the disciples. It was a choice of those who went to go follow. Someone said, hey, I want to go to Plato's Academy, and they went to Plato's Academy, or I want to go follow this great rabbi, Rabbi Hillel or some others, and they went to go follow that rabbi. That's not what we see here. In this text, Jesus is the one who does the calling. It's initiated by Jesus, not by those who want to go follow him. Another fascinating thing about this text is that there's no real content in the discipleship call. Read commentators for a long time. All Jesus says is, follow me and you will be fishers for people. That's it. That's all he says. Follow me and I'll help you fish for people. Now, here's another intriguing thing. When the disciples do agree to do that, what happens? You basically don't see the disciples for the next five chapters. What are they doing? They're following Jesus around, and they're watching. They're listening to his teachings. They're watching him heal people. At one point, Jesus comes into the house of Peter's uh, mother-in-law and heals her. That's where you see the disciples. It's not until chapter 10 that Jesus turns and actually starts talking directly to the disciples. First stage is watching, listening. The most famous book on discipleship, written in the 20th century, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a preacher in Germany during the 1930s, and and an intellectual. And, And Bonhoeffer was one of a group of very bold, very courageous German ministers who stood up to Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer had no qualms preaching against Hitler and said that what Hitler was doing was not Christian and he would let the world know it. He wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship, in part as a call to his other fellow Christian preachers in Germany and other fellow Christians in Germany. 
And he spends the book railing on what he calls cheap grace. He said too many people have cheap grace. They make grace to be simple. They make being a Christian to be simple when here is a time when we are called to, fall, to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer is so harsh in his words. When I first read this book through uh, in Divinity School, I didn't like it at all. I mean, there's a whole bunch of very harsh stuff about sin, about suffering, about... And so initially I didn't like it, but looking at it again this past week, I sort of saw it with, with new eyes. I said, okay, this is a guy in the 1930s in Germany. People are being arrested. Bonhoeffer ended up dying for what he stood up for. I can see him getting up and being so harsh in his language. And once I got beyond the harsh language, I actually found something really intriguing in the text. Bonhoeffer lifts up the, lifts up the example of, of Martin Luther. Luther was, of course, a monk. He tried to be the most hardcore disciple that he could possibly be. And Luther discovered in his monastery that he was just as much of a sinner in his monastery as he had been beforehand. And that separating himself off from the world wasn't, in fact, the answer to being a disciple. And so Bonhoeffer says the first stage in being a Christian is showing up in church. Because in the church, you hear the words of Jesus, just like the disciples did in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. You hear the words of Jesus. You hear about his teachings, his healings. You might find a bit of healing for yourself. And Bonhoeffer says, then in the church, when you hear the gospel preached, and you hear Jesus calling you, then it gives you an opportunity to respond. That's the life of discipleship. Now I look around at this meeting house here, every week, I'm impressed, very impressed that you all show up. Because the reality is, it's entirely voluntary. No one is pressuring you to show up here. You are deciding to give up your sleep to come here because some part of you wants a deeper relationship with God and a deeper relationship with one another. And it's not necessarily easy to get here. For some of you, getting up in the mornings is not a very easy thing. I I know that. Some of you deal with various physical infirmities. Some of you you deal with chronic pain, uh, mental illness that can make it tough to get up out of bed in the morning and get to church. Some of you have to deal with little kids um, and getting them all ready to come to church in the morning. It's not easy to get here, and yet you make the effort to be here. And that is the first step. And as you come here, as you feel the support of others, as you read the, the words of Scripture, as you hear them preached, it is my hope that at some point you will hear in those words Jesus saying something to you. Calling you to do something. In your context, in your life. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to listen to that call. When you hear it, to respond. That call might not come this morning. It might not come next week or the week after that. But I guarantee you that if you're here and diligently pray and diligently read through the scriptures, that you will hear that call. I encourage you to be a disciple. Respond to it.